Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jonathan Franzen is one of my favorite contemporary novelists. His stories are are long-winded. I've always been attracted to that. And, (laughs) And enmeshed with many memorable characters who invariably remind me of myself and others I know. His latest, Connections, feels unusually close to home. The protagonist is a poor guy by the name of Russ Hildebrandt. He's a beloved pastor in a liberal Protestant church in the Chicago area. It's the early 1970s, and Russ is in a big mess. Not only is he experiencing all the predictable kinds of questions and dilemmas known to most of us in ministry at some point, He also is toying with the idea of really messing up his life with an affair, a so typically midlife kind of crisis that for any other writer, it would cloy immediately. But not so for Branson. His characters are so maddeningly believable and approachable in all their missteps and justifications, we forgive him for this slightly cliched moment. A side story for Russ, the pastor, as though he didn't have enough going on, is that he despises the younger, more attractive, hipper youth pastor who seems to be making Russ look duller and duller, not to mention a little long in the tooth. Ambrose, the whippersnapper, is everyone's dream youth priest. As Russ questions everything about his life, he rather blindingly projects all of his bad feelings onto Ambrose, to whom everyone in the parish seems to be flocking now for counseling and inspiration. And oh, did I mention, the number coming to Russ had fallen off a lot. When their conflict becomes undeniable, barely hidden from others, they gather for a tense moment of confrontation. Russ begins his tirade of grievances against Ambrose, who before he could stop him, suddenly excuses himself from the room and returns in a moment with a basin of water and sits on the floor in front of Ross. To his horror, Russ realizes that this jerk is about to wash his feet. The discomfort in the room, fully palpable, just jumps off every page. The only thing that keeps Russ from running from the room is that Ambrose piously and I think probably genuinely insists that this act, this sacramental moment of washing Russ's feet 
will be offered as an act of prayer for both of them, that it's probably necessary for them to forgive and move on. Franson writes, Russ knew better than to pray his way out of hatred. He had tried it a hundred times to no avail. What moved him was the hand that was grasping his. It was slender, youthful, black-haired. It was just a human hand, a young man's hand, and it reminded him of his son's hand. His chest began to shake. Ambrose tightened his grip, and Russ sustendered, surrendered to his weakness. He must have wept for ten full minutes with Ambrose kneeling at his feet. This poignant scene of immense discomfort, the struggle to accept and give forgiveness, and ultimately the cathartic release of copious tears, touches me very deeply. Now, you need to read the, under, the other 600 pages to get to the end of the story, but it's worth it. There are many other moments where forgiveness and regret are expressed and where ultimately, at least in some cases, some redemption occurs. But it's not a short trip. It's not an easy one. And in my experience, it never is. Now, I've gone on and on about this in my opening because in my many years as a priest, I can say without a doubt that the struggle with forgiveness is near the top of the human miseries through which I have walked with others and indeed which I have known deeply in my own experience. None of us seems to be exempt from it. We desperately want to be forgiven. We want whatever it is that we have done, whether an egregious act or something much less dramatic, to be put away, forgotten, forgiven. And beyond that, even in instances of immense pain to us when we have been damaged so badly by someone else, there is somewhere in us that genuine desire to forgive. Perhaps it's self-serving because we realize that if we are not able to do it, we may not be able to move on. Whether it is or not, I don't know, but there is a yearning to make it as right as it can be. Oddly though, to me at least, both desires, the desire to be forgiven and the desire to forgive others, both are very difficult to do. Since absolutely no one escapes this dilemma, and it's obvious to all of us in this room that church people are not exempt from it for sure, it seems to me that it's incumbent upon our faith experience to address this thorny issue if we can. I'm going to try to do that in the next few minutes. If anything... Our present day culture seems to be even less forgiving, less desirous of recognizing the commonness of life's foibles and failures, less able to admit that each one of us 
could so easily be caught up in the big sin of the moment, the failure du jour. The newly coined and deeply troubling phenomenon of canceling comes to mind. None of us even knew what that was a year ago. This practice is rapidly, though, becoming an institutionalized way of concretizing our lack of forgiveness. As a culture, we not only struggle with personal issues around forgiveness and the lack of it, but we also now have a textbook on how to publicly shame, punish, and never forgive those who, at least in the view of the looker, have stepped out of line. I clearly reside on one side of the cultural divide. Most of us do, if we're honest. But I know that I do this, and I expect you do too. I pray earnestly not to take joy when a public figure on the other side is canceled. None of us, mercifully, is as bad as our worst moments. It seems obvious that we as Christians should feel that way. And yet, speaking for myself, I am so filled with conviction and a touch of arrogance that my side is, my side is right, that it is a genuine spiritual battle to not take delight when someone falls victim to this truly awful practice. It goes way beyond canceling does the necessity, particularly of public officials, to hold them accountable. We're not talking about that. That's, this is something beyond that. And I think it's a bad thing. So what does our Holy Writ offer as wisdom about this whole thorny issue? Not just canceling, obvi canceling obviously, but forgiveness. The most authentic and consistent words of Jesus, I believe, have much to say to us in this regard that is challenging and life-giving. Both the overriding arc of Jesus' life and the experience we have of the risen Christ, the post-Easter Christmas, who continues to live among us, both of those figures bear witness again and again to the remarkable power of forgiveness, to the way that it enhances our humanness, moving us along the way toward the divineness which is born in each of us. I've never known anyone, for example, upon hearing the story to be untouched when Jesus' famous response to a group of men about to stone an adulterous woman is repeated. Jesus said, let him without sin cast the first stone. Just the recalling of that remark has quieted many an angry heart and sharp tongue. Throughout his life and at the end of it on the cross, Jesus was very much about forgiveness. For his executioners, you will remember, he prayed, Father, forgive them. It's always intrigued me that Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. Sentimentally, I choose to believe that Jesus Himself forgave them. 
But what the scripture says is that he asked God to do it. Perhaps the learning there is that sometimes in the case of the most egregious sins, the best any of us can do is to ask God to forgive on our behalf. I don't know. That shouldn't be our default position, we not being Christ. But maybe it's a good starting place. In some cases, we may have to admit it's the only place we can get. What seems unmistakable though, what seems in my heart of hearts to be true about who God is, is that to forgive is the nature of God. It's a great sadness to me that I've had such a hard time knowing that and that I believe most of us do. Hard to believe that it comes so naturally to God. That blindness keeps us from recognizing this defining essential characteristic of God. God's choice to forgive appears to be divine imperative, seemingly hardwired into the DNA of God. Now we readily say, oh, of course God forgives. But we often live as as though we do not believe that. Some of us carry around old sins, some appalling sins, some not, but sins that have been long forgiven and forgotten by God, but ones to which we cling, sadly unable to accept the fact of God's forgiveness. Thirty years ago, I remember the church. I have no idea who the preacher was. I remember a preacher saying that most of us relate to our shortcomings as we relate to garbage. We haul it out to the street, but before it's taken away, we drag it back to the garage with us where it sits and festers even though God is ready, willing, and divinely able to be done with it at the moment that we take it before God. And I believe even before we take it to God. But I know I've lost a lot of time in my life doing that sort of thing. If you have to, I hope both of us can stop. It seems, though, to be too good to be true, doesn't it? And and to be perfectly honest... Scripture does not always make it easy for us to be clear about the abundance of God's grace. I think the reason for that is that the marvelous writers of our faith story had trouble believing it too. Humans recorded our story, and though we believe they were divinely inspired, we know they were inspired human beings. As a result... Their views, their hang-ups, their control needs, and their fears crept into the telling of the story. We know that. That's why we're not fundamentalist. We believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of intelligence and reason given to us by God, we can, particularly in the corroboration of a community of faith, just like us sitting in this room, that we can determine the overriding message of Scripture. It's critical to who I believe we are. The text we have just heard is a great story about forgiveness and the lack of it. It's also a story that illustrates the limitations of a literal reading of the Scripture. 
Matthew using an exaggerated, probably well-known morality piece, tells us the story of a provincial secular official, likely in charge of tax collectors, who was surprisingly touched one day by a servant's inability to pay, and even more surprisingly chooses to forgive his debt and sends him out to live the rest of his life. Because it's a morality tale, though, we know it's not over yet. The just forgiven slave refuses to forgive another servant who is in a nearly identical situation to his. His ridiculously tone-deaf and nefarious and a story, it's not atypical, we do that sort of thing all the time, but that response to how well he had been treated results in an outcry among the servant crowd. When they tell the official of the servant's lack of passing the kindest forward, he revokes his generosity and throws the now forever monikered unforgiving slave into prison and throws away the key. So what's wrong with that? What's the problem? Seems right to us. The action is precisely what a capriciously generous secular official would be expected to do. It would be a great example of human justice and injustice and how each is understood and dispensed. It's exactly what we would do. Mercifully, it's not at all what God would do. Matthew, probably not the original disciple by that name, certainly not, maybe another tax collector, whatever. Matthew's story did not stop with that verse. It continued. And it ends with this last verse, which you heard Scott read. I'll read it again quickly. And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he could pay his entire debt so my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother and sister from your heart. In an attempt to use this story as an allegory where the secular official represents God, rather than to use it as a parable, a story about some humans who are talking from which we can learn lessons, Because he did it the former way rather than the latter, Matthew inserts into our consciousness the notion that God is not always and forever forgiving. And you're not shocked by that because we've heard it all our lives. That unless we uniformly and consistently follow the way or at least believe correctly being in the Bible Belt, that we cannot expect eternal forgiveness. That forgiveness, in the end, after all, is transactional, not derived from the nature of God. Taking the allegory one point further, I get revved up about this, it's a short jump to viewing burning in hell as an eternal option. In the same gospel, this 
Same writer, just a few verses earlier, says this. Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. 77 times, or seven times 70 in the other version, those are examples of Bible speak that means endless. We're supposed to forgive endlessly. So, how do we square this difference? Well, it's not as hard as it seems. Most New Testament scholars, and certainly those of the Jesus Seminar, you know that group, who spent six years determining textually, thematically, and through source criticism, which sayings attributed to Jesus are most likely authentic Jesus, and which are most likely to be the view of the writer. Most scholars, period, and a huge preponderance of the Jesus Seminar agree that this verse, Matthew 18.35, represents the agenda of Matthew, who happened to be the most law and order kind of guy among the early narrators, much more than it does the actual teachings of Jesus, let alone the life of Jesus. Now, I fully agree with that hermeneutic, and those folks are a lot smarter than I am. And yet, I am convinced that though Matthew was misled in his conclusion, his story, just as he told it, has some significance for us. Failing to forgive, I do not believe, will get us thrown into eternal torture. God does not broker in torture, eternal or otherwise. But beyond a doubt, if our hearts are so hard that we are unable to forgive, we will lead tortured lives. For some of us, it'll just be tortured lives regarding a certain or several relationships or this or that thing. For others, it'll be their whole lives. But however and wherever we do not forgive, we will live tortuously. What little we get from nursing and nourishing an old hurt, which obviously is fun for us on some level, is absolutely overshadowed by the damage it does to our souls. It won't send us to eternal hell but it'll place us squarely in some hell right now. Forgiveness is complicated. Almost seven years ago now in Charleston, it's hard to believe, a young white supremacist walks into Emmanuel Methodist Episcopal Church, sits quietly and reverently with them for a while, and then takes out a gun and shoots nine of them. Many, many shootings have occurred since then. My guess, though, is that maybe just for people like us, maybe for everybody, we are really unlikely to forget this one anytime soon. Shortly after the killing, long before the trial, which found the shooter guilty of 30 counts, various members of our community, of the community there, and relatives of the victims stated that they had forgiven this young man. 
I, I remember marveling at that, and I still do. And frankly, I was somewhat suspicious, not of something deliberately untruthful or that they were trying to do something untruthful, but somehow that what they were saying was the speech of shock, a claim that truly is not possible. I hope I was wrong. I have no reason to believe that the grace that was visited upon them on that day has not continued until now. I don't know. Theirs, as it was, was an amazing witness to how our faith as people of a faith community was willing, were willing to be able to forgive this hideous act of violence. I wonder if I would have that kind of capacious spirituality, and I doubt it, frankly. I take a little comfort from something one of my favorite writers of many, many years ago, Madeline Lingle, she once wrote that for her, sometimes forgiveness simply means the ability to think of someone without malice. That may be a start. One of the greatest tragedies of something that I abhor more than almost anything in our culture, one of the greatest tragedies of capital punishment is its claim that this ultimate punishment will satisfy, that it will provide closure, that it will give final comfort to the loved ones of crime's victims. I've never stood in their place. I, I realize the absence of having done that means I cannot even begin to imagine what I would feel like if someone I treasured was murdered. I do believe this, though, that the claim that execution of the killer will make it right is a terrible, terrible lie. In my many years of opposing capital punishment, earlier moments of activism now sort of morphed into a slow burn of, of a resolve about something's essential wrongness. During that time, I have, seen, I have been a keen observer of family members who were interviewed right after the execution. I've looked at them closely. And to a one, peace is not what I have seen on their faces after learning that the man was, or woman was killed. Among the many issues around forgiveness, two linger in my mind as I begin to close. The first one is the notion that's received a lot of attention in therapeutic circles over recent years, and that is our unwillingness to forgive ourselves. I've alluded to it in a way with the garbage analogy. My own practice as a priest suggests that therapists are right about that, that being able to forgive ourselves really is important to our mental and spiritual health. Years ago, a wise spiritual director of mine, whom I didn't like much, um, had listened to me whine about something that I had done and couldn't let go of. And he sort of leaned back one day, and I'll never forget it, said, and said, so, you think your sin is so awful that God can, can forgive everybody else but not you? How special you must be. <laughs> As you can see, I've never quite forgiven him for it, but... Because it was brutal, but he was absolutely right. 
I don't want to be so wonderfully attached to a sin like that, and I don't want you to be too. And yet it's a slippery slope, and that's my other point about this forgiving ourselves business. Too casually forgiving ourselves for hurting others particularly has appeared to me in my conversation sometimes as a get-out-of-jail-free card, which in fact denies the consequences of the actions. More a sort of act of irresponsibility, it seems to me, than genuine self-forgiveness. There have been a couple of times with a couple of people I was counseling with that I wanted to say, yes, of course forgive yourself, but not quite yet. Hold on, Skippy, there's a little more work to be done. You get the point. And then finally, in some ways, probably for people like us, most of us, I believe, reared in the church, brought up in the faith which we cherish, one of the hardest things we may need to forgive is to forgive God. To forgive God for not being the God we have created. God to be. It was innocent enough, this childish notion of God. The stories taught us about a God who was quick, ready, and willing to solve anything, to deliver us from all danger, to be, in fact, almost, probably in our little minds, we thought, a celestial action Many of us began some of our most cherished prayers with the words, Almighty God. While devotionally that may work for us, in the truth of our experience, what we know is that God does not deliver us from all danger. God does not give us every answer we're looking for. But what God has done is to redeem us and indeed all of humanity, not as an all-powerful God in any sense that we understand as powerful, but as an all-vulnerable God. A God as defined just this week by Bishop Eddington of the churches in Europe as one whose love is finally victorious through the vulnerability of a naked man nailed to a cross. That's a far cry from a victorious spiritual Rambo. To move to the recognition of God as a companion in life's joys and pains, to see God as un an unparalleled sustainer in both moments of triumph and defeat, as the one from whom nothing can separate us, to make that move is to move from spiritual childhood to adulthood. And I make no claims of having been able to do that completely, but I do know, I think, here and here, that in an odd way, growing up spiritually means that somehow we have to forgive and let go of the earlier God we had imagined 
or more correctly, forgive the one who people had helped us to imagine. I will tell you that I believe that forgiveness is derived from and filled with grace. But I'll also tell you that forgiveness is work. Hard work. Perhaps the hardest work we shall ever do on our spiritual journey. Lent, it seems to me, is ready-made to provide a rarefied, holy space of openness to admit that which we need to have forgiven about us and to be shown ways in which we still need to forgive. Maybe we pray that every morning for the next 40 days or 39 or how many there are. In the end and along the way, what I believe I know, my fellow journeyers, is that we are left with this. Where there is forgiveness, there is life. And that that life comes to us from the heart of God and where there is no forgiveness, there is not life, but only despair. In the name of God, Amen. Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.